Good morning, or good afternoon. This is Dr. John Hunt for Let's Talk Animals from Aardvarks to Zebras. We're here every fourth Thursday at 4 p.m. We used to be in the morning. That's why I made my uh, good morning mistake. Uh, we are not live. We are taped. We're still doing uh, taped shows. Uh, I hope in the future some of my shows will be live so we can have listeners call in. So please do not call in today because this is a pre-taped show. I always plug my Sunday morning uh, pet sounds feature at 7.30 in the morning, my pet sounds shorts. So please tune in on a Sunday morning to get some more information on, on pets. Uh, today, I have Dr. Jim Weber from the University of Maine. Uh, we have two topics we're going to cover, some exciting new research uh, that uh, spilled over into veterinary medicine and his uh, his animal and veterinary science program at UMaine we want, we want to talk about. So good morning, Jim. How are you? Good, John. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me on the show. Well, this is your second time. So uh, you didn't yep. learn the first time to stay away from me. <laughs> That's true. That's true. We had a fun time last time. Yes, it was very back. fun. Yep. And please uh, just kind of remind the listeners of who you are and where you work and what you do. Uh, just okay. so you have an idea what, who's talking on the radio. Sure, sure. So I work at the University of Maine in Orono. Um, I'm a veterinarian uh, with a graduate degree. So I'm a veterinarian who specializes in research. Um, my area of expertise in veterinary medicine is mostly large animals. And so that, I, I took a job at the University of Maine about 25 years ago um, in the animal and veterinary science department. And I have several components of that job. Um, of course, I teach undergraduate students, and maybe we'll get into some detail later, but we have animal science students and pre-vet students. Um, I also work with the public um, in terms of as a veterinarian. Uh, people call me up and we, we talk about things like sheep parasites and you know various things related to um, animal husbandry and animal diseases. Um, a third area that I work in is research, and it's about half my job up here. Um, dealing with research and um, that affects humans and animals. So, so why, why is your research uh, related to humans if you're a veterinarian and just dealing with animals? Right. So um, as a veterinarian, you know, we're, we're, um, we're taught to use a lot of different species or work with a lot of species. Um, humans aren't one of them. <laughs> um, but uh, about, I don't know, 12 years ago, uh, a physician who is actually a trauma surgeon um, who used to work at Eastern Maine Medical Centers named Ian Dickey um, approached me about a really exciting area of research that he had been working on. And I joined this, we sort of set up a team where we have a, a physician who's actually doing surgeries. We've got a veterinarian who can, can work with animal models of, of surgical implants, which is what we did. We have an engineer on the team, Dave Navant. And uh, another veterinarian, Ann Lichtenwalner, who has experience in, in pathology and things like that. So we all got together and said, let's build a better medical implant. And uh, we've been doing this on and off for, like I said, since about 2008. Um, and we've finally gotten to a point where we're, we're looking at applications in human medicine and veterinary medicine for some of the discoveries we've made up here at the university. And this has all been done at UMaine or within the state of Maine. So bringing veterinarians in, it seems like... Uh would be to help uh, develop the animal model yes. for your so, product. Okay. Yeah, so um, so there's a lot of things if, um, 
you know, we're looking at, and we'll talk about the details here in a minute, but we're looking at implants that are, are surgically placed into humans. You know, we, you, a good example of an implant is an artificial knee or an artificial hip. Um, all of those devices need to be tested a number of ways before the Food and Drug Administration will allow them to be used you know, in a surgical setting. So, you know, one is engineering. We want to make sure if an implant goes in, it's not toxic, it's not going to break, it's not going to wear out, a um, bunch of different things. So there's a bunch of physical tests, but there's also um, a step in most cases when you have an implantable device where you have to check it out in an animal model. And that's what we're doing up here at the university is, is actually looking at the interaction between these implants, which are made of titanium, and, um, you know, animals, we've, we've used rabbit models and we've used pig models up here. And in the last, uh, since 2008, uh, have there been uh, changes in how you use animals as models now? As well, a- I, 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 there's actually a whole um, history behind the use of animals at, at a place like the University of Maine, a public institution. Um, that does research. Um, so we have a number of researchers who are in the biological sciences or some um, related animal science or medical field um, that want to use animals. And, and again, they're, they're testing a product. They're trying to build a better mousetrap. Um, so we have a whole um, hierarchy set up here at the university, and there's a lot of administrators and, and controls and things. We work with the federal government to ensure that uh, a vast variety of animal welfare and animal health regulations are are satisfied when we do this research. Um, we have something called an animal care and use committee, uh, which has to approve every project that's done at the university, whether it's a teaching project that uses cows in our dairy, you know, the cows are being milked and we're using them basically to teach students about animal husbandry or a surgical project that I'm doing. You know, we've got aquaculture projects down at the, the Franklin University facility in Franklin, Maine. Uh, we've got wildlife projects that are going out and looking at endangered species, you know, so vast variety. Uh, the University of Maine um, is not a huge animal program, but it's, it's one of the most varied ones I've ever worked at. And my role here is I'm actually the attending veterinarian for the university. So I'm the person on the animal care and use committee who looks at these from the animal's point of view. Okay, so I'm, I'm trying to see, you know, make sure that these animals are treated humanely and to the highest standards. You know, if we do a surgery on an animal, we're actually using many of the same painkillers and techniques and same level of um, sterility as you would in a, in a human operating room. So, And that's very important that the public understands that. Uh, many years ago, 20, 30 years ago, I went to a home to pick up a kitten just to have as a pet. And the lady found out that I was a the local veterinarian and the first thing she said because she looked very nervous like she didn't want to give me the, the kitten are you going to use them for experiments and i was blown yeah. away that that someone had that impression that a private practitioner would do that so i think it's very important right. for you to uh make sure the public is aware of your of all the things you do to protect uh, research animals Yes. And I think, you know, that's, and again, it's, I always like to talk about, you know, all the controls that are in place. Uh, We actually have uh, the members of the committee are scientists. We have non-scientist faculty members, maybe from the philosophy department, the English department on campus. We're part of this committee. Uh, We also have an outside member. Um, It may be a a member of the community. They don't have to have any scientific background. 
Uh, we've had a number of very good active outside members and we bring those people in. They listen to every proposal, every protocol that's, you know, that the committee has to look at and either approve or disapprove. And they give us a really good perspective. Um, I would think of, you know, the man on the street and making sure that what we're doing makes sense. Uh, we also look at, uh, you know, how many animals do we actually need in a project? You know, uh, we're doing a study at the dairy where we're studying nutrition and we're feeding these animals different feeds, things fairly non-invasive. But, you know, how many animals do we need in that study to actually get results that are statistically valid that we can take to the bank and say, you know, we, we got an outcome from this study and this feed is better than that feed. We don't want to use more than we have to. And that's a, a general rule of the IACUC is reduce, reduce the number of animals. And if we can do a project in the lab, you know, in a Petri dish without an animal, and there's a good experimental method, we will use that instead of using an animal in that study, you know, using a mouse or uh, think of a vertebrate animal. We basically, we control animals that have a backbone and some higher brain function. So we need, there's not an eye cook for insects, you know, for example, yeah. insect well, studies. Well, that's very reassuring in general. So in, in, implants which is you say artificial knees and hips you do need animal models uh, yep. so tell us a little bit about how this implant develop i mean why is it so special why is it so exciting right okay so um <clears throat> one of the things that um has happened in in orthopedic medicine orthopedic medicine is when we're dealing with bones um there's a number of implants that need to attach to bone and some of these implants actually go from you know, attaching the bone to outside of the body. Um, for example, uh, if someone is unfortunate enough to lose a limb, they have an artificial, you know, they, an artificial limb is put on them. And in most cases, those are attached by what we call a socket. And a socket is just this form-fitting plastic cup that fits on the end of your, your what's left of your leg. And below that is, is what you walk on, the limb. And they, they've got all kinds of technology in them now. They're really neat. Um, in probably the last 20 years, people have started to attach the artificial limb directly to the bone. So, um, for example, there are now artificial limbs that are what we call osseointegrated, integrated into the, the core of, for example, the femur, the bone in the upper part of your leg. Um, so this, this thing would, would basically become part of your skeleton and it would attach to the, um, to the limb. The problem with that is somewhere between the artificial limb and your femur, your bone, uh, there's, there's skin. So there's a point where um, bacteria can get in and infect the wound. And this has always been a problem with these osseointegrated implants. Um, there's dental implants that are similar to that. Uh, there's implants they use to, for people with deafness. They call them cochlear implants that go into the, the bones in the back of the head and they, they actually breach the skin. So we're looking at this as a model. How do we reduce infection rates in these implants that actually go out um, through the skin? Uh, it's a big deal. I mean, in, in the U.S., I think there's 200,000 amputations a year. Uh, there's, you know, hundreds of thousands of, of cochlear implants put in. Uh, there's a, something called external fixation um, where we actually use pins that go through the skin to stabilize fractures. And in, in those cases, you know, that's a billion-dollar-a-year industry just in terms of the pins. So big, you know, industries. Um, so what we found was one way to prevent bacteria from actually going in between the skin and these smooth implants that are you know, made of metal is to actually make the outside of the implant porous. Um, so 
you can actually take a, um, a medical grade implant and put what we call porous elements into that so that the tissues, the skin, the, the muscles will grow into those and, and actually form what we call a barrier or a biological seal that excludes bacteria. And that's been our research probably for the last eight or 10 years is, is actually making a seal, proving that it, it excludes bacteria. And, and we've, we've done, I don't know, over 150 Im implants and have not had an infection yet. And some of these implants have stayed in for, for months. We're actually going into longer periods of time. Now that's kind of what we have to prove to the medical field is that, you know, these things will, will hold up over time and, and they're robust and, and, you know, they would work in a, in a human model if we put them into patients. Okay. Um, last year in 2020, uh, the university actually has been trying to get what we call intellectual property protection for this, this concept. This that came out of research that was done at the University of Maine, and uh, the university was awarded a patent for this technology back in 2020. So we're actually now looking at medical implant manufacturers and um, how to get these things into the hands of surgeons and you know, prove that they're safe and start using them in people. So you may mention a seal, uh, maybe a more uh, common man description of what a seal is. This, is this is this scar tissue? Is it uh, some kind of membrane? I mean, what, what's okay when you yeah, say uh, seal keep bacteria? What does that mean? Because that's so important uh, and, to your research. Yeah, and that's that's the body. Um, you know, one of the things I, I teach a diseases course to my my undergraduate students, and one of the things we talk about. <clears throat> are barriers to infection that the body has. And the skin is a wonderful barrier. It, you know, we're surrounded by trillions of bacteria in our environment and they grow on our skin, but very, very few of them enter the body because the skin prevents, physically prevents them from entering deep tissues and getting into the bloodstream and things like that. Um, when you have a break in the skin, they can get infected. Um, so when we put a device that goes through the skin, they, we call these transcutaneous or actually percutaneous, goes from deep tissue, maybe from bone, through muscle, through skin, out into the outside world, we've produced a break in the skin. Um, and these smooth metal implants that are being used now, uh, the break stays there as long as the implant is in. With um, this new technology, we have multiple layers of pores. These pores are well under a millimeter in size, but skin tissue actually grows into it and muscle tissue is attached to it and blood vessels actually go in there and, and pump blood in and, you know, you know, bring oxygen in. So if you look at these things several weeks after they've been put into, a, a, you know, the soft tissues, you'll, they'll be almost completely filled in with um, skin or muscle or adipose tissue fat. And, and once that happens and you've got a, a good solid bond, um, the bacteria can't, get through there. The, the barrier is reestablished, okay. which is really fascinating. You know, like I said, there, we go in and, and, you know, you expect these things to get infected and they just don't. And that's been the neat thing about this, this particular um, technology. Okay. So you have to be patient with me here. Yep, uh, yep. I'm, I'm kind of listening as if I'm a, um, I'm not a veterinarian. I'm just like a regular guy because yep, yep, yep. I have a artificial hip. And a lot of people out there have artificial knees and hips. And what they're thinking is, well, I went to the hospital and got this artificial hip and they closed my skin and there's right. nothing showing. So how does that differ from what you're talking about in terms of implants? I think that may be um, right. Right. Yeah. We'll clarify that. And so 
in, in the artificial hip, they go, you know, when they do or a knee, they go into a sterile surgery room. Everything is sterilized. The implants sterilized, the, the air, the instruments, everything. And so when they put that implement in the artificial hip, for example, uh, they don't introduce any bacteria. And then they're very careful to suture everything up, sew up the skin, and that heals within a few days and you have a closed implant. So it's not percutaneous or transcutaneous. Okay. Those have a much, in that case, the skin barrier has been reestablished. So you all of a sudden have that barrier back in place that works really, really well. When we go in, you know, another example would be a feeding tube in a person that has to go from the outside to the inside. That's going to create a, a, what we call a stoma or a hole that's never going to heal up. Okay. So right. any of these things that, and the bacteria are always going to be there. You can't sterilize the outside of the body. So, so these implants um, are more for the amputees people, not, yeah. not for, not for the artificial hips. Like we just right. talked and about the foam technology is actually being used in things like artificial hips and artificial knees um, for another reason, because they, they form a very good attachment to bone. Um, so not only soft tissues, but um, if, for example, you've got an artificial hip and it goes into what's called the pelvic bone, they, they kind of carve out a, a, a space for that piece of metal to go into. And it used to be they would, it's, it's kind of like construction. They, they put screws in, they drill holes, they put screws in, they use bone cement. So they actually cement it in place. And then they hope that there's going to be some attachment to these solid, smooth um, implants. And usually they, they are pretty solid and they work well. But some of the improvements we've seen um, in the latest versions of things like artificial hips is they will have now a, a layer of foam, foam metal in the area where the implant attaches to bone and they've removed the need for cement, for example. Yeah. It's my, so, I had my hip yeah. done four years ago and that's exactly what it was is my yeah, bone grew into the implant. Yep. And that's known as osseo integration. So bone integration what we're right. looking at is something called soft tissue integration in addition to that. So one of the things they're looking at even for hips and knees is that that artificial hip is also in contact with other structures in that area beside bone, um, maybe cartilage, maybe muscle might cover parts of it. So what we're looking at in those cases, even though it's not for infection control, is if those tissues grow in, all of a sudden you've got a much more stable, much stronger implant that's, that's not going to, you know, tear loose and people might be able to put more weight on them or actually do more normal activities. Um, and that's the thing with the implants, with the, uh, the amputees is we're hoping by attaching the fake, you know, the artificial limb to the bone, to osseo integrate it, to soft tissue integrate it and to seal it. So we don't get an infection that a person will have a very normal leg that that doesn't hurt that that works normally that um, it can take a lot of weight they have a normal gait they walk normally um, all these things we think are going to be improvements from this particular technology so someone putting on a leg um, instead of strapping it yeah and that and that's the way it's secure you're actually kind of fitting a screw into a it's more fitting from yeah, a yeah. implant on the body to the artificial limb. So it's, you're like snapping it in. Yeah, ex it's exactly like that. You know, I, I, okay. um, I have a tractor at home and I have implements that snap together. And it's, <laughs> I can think of this. So, so what they do is they actually put this, um, 
you know, osseous integration piece, they put a piece into the inside of your femur, give it a few months to heal in. And it's, it's got like a little attachment on it. And then basically there's an outside piece that snaps onto that and your artificial limb snaps onto that. And so and there's, you know, it's modular. Yeah. So on that, and that's where your, that's where your product comes in. It prevents bacteria from getting, going in, into these, into the yeah. body from that, the part of the leg that snaps into the artificial yep. leg. Okay. And, and, and they've been doing these, these, you know, what I would call skeletally attached artificial limbs for decades. Um, they've always had infection resist infection problems um, because you have to figure these implants, you know, if someone is 30 and they lose a limb, um, they may be, you know, needing an artificial limb for decades. And, you know, you, to keep something infection free for decades is very difficult. So, and, and if it gets down into the bone, you know, if it goes from the skin and gets into the, you know, the skin, then goes down into the muscle and gets that infected. And if the bone becomes infected, they have to remove these things. Oh. And then you start getting into some really serious second surgeries and infection control and just all these awful things. So um, that's one reason why most people are still fitted with external, um, you know, artificial limbs that don't actually require a surgery because of the side effects. And it's like 99% of them are external and, and maybe less than 1% now are, are being fitted directly to the skeleton. This is Let's Talk Animals from Aardvarks to Zebras at WERU 89.9 and Dr. John Hunt, your host. And we're talking to Dr. Jim Weber from the University of Maine, talking about some very exciting new research on uh, implants uh, for humans, but uh, he's also... Uh, spilling over into maybe using it in pets and how is that going? Well, um, so one of the things that we're looking at with, um, with the artificial limb is how do we actually show that these things work without putting them into a bunch of poor people? <laughs> you know, say, Oh my God, <laughs> that wasn't designed right. You know? Um, so we're, we're working with, um, a few companies, actually a company in Maine we're working with right now, um, to design what we call a prototype. And what this is, is it's, it's, it, it will be the device that we might use in a human with all the different features. And, and the first step on that is to make a bunch of these out of titanium and then test them and say, okay, engineering wise, are they strong enough? If we put them through, you know, a person's going to walk on their limb thousands of times a day. So we put that stress on it hundreds of thousands of times. Does it break? Does it fail? Um, and, you know, once we do that, we're going to start looking at, okay, we'd love, love to do this in an animal model. And from my point of view, um, this makes a really good opportunity to go into veterinary medicine and start working with a whole new group of patients that may need, you know, a technology like this. And so I've been talking with veterinarians for a, a large part of the last year about things like, you know, if, if you have an animal comes into your clinic and it got hit by a car, and it lost its leg, had a very bad fracture, and we had to amputate a hind limb on a dog. This happens very often. I'm sure John has had to deal with patients and clients like that in his yes. clinic over, over the years. And it's, you know, we, these animals get amputations. Um, they do fairly well um, with, you know, three legs, um, and they get around. But, but, you know, I start talking to these veterinarians and these surgeons, and they say, you know, there is there are clients out there who would like to see their dogs being able to walk more normally. And, and, you know, then maybe we start looking at um, artificial limbs for dogs and there are companies that sell what we call socket type artificial limbs that strap onto the dogs and fit them and they work all right. Um, but one of the things we're trying to do is to actually set up a project 
And this would be um, funded by the federal government, uh, actually it's by the National Institute of Health, to use dogs that have been injured that need an artificial limb and to actually defray the cost of something like that so that the client could come in and, and basically work with the veterinarian, the veterinary surgeon, um, you know, do the surgery. Um, and then the animal is, is able to, you know, put weight on this thing and we'll, we'll see how they perform. And all we ask is that we, we basically keep data on how the dogs are doing over the next year or two. And that is a very good way to see, you know, okay, you know, maybe we need to design this slightly differently and we can make several different, um, you know, design one, design two, design three over time. And, and finally, we get to a point where we say this is ready for use in humans. Um, and I think the dogs could do a lot of good for humans and we could do a lot of good for dogs um, from that. So this is something we're trying. We don't have any of the funding yet. So don't give me a call and say, I've got a dog that needs, <laughs> this may be a year from now. And I'd love to work with, with clients. You know, we're talking to veterinarians in Maine right now who do a lot of surgeries and, and may have animals like this that come into their clinics um, that we can sign them up and, and start working with them. Um, we're actually, we, you know, you said, well, the dogs are being used as guinea pigs. Well, there's actually been two of these implants with the foam technology that the, um, the Department of Veterans Affairs, the VA, has, um, you know, the, and the surgeon that I work with, they've actually implanted two um, artificial limb attachments in, in two um, Iraq war veterans a few years back. And I think um, they've, they've got like two years of data on these guys and they're doing great, which is just amazing. Um, so it's something where you can do a little bit in humans, you can do a little, little bit in animals, and eventually you get to the point where the people in the federal government will need to approve this device. We'll say, okay, we think this is safe. We will let you manufacture this commercially. So, and many pet owners out there may think, well, that's never. It's how many dogs are really going to need that? But all you need is one, um, right? That right. can help. And I, the one artificial end that I did uh, fit was very complicated. I had make a mold. And it's all sorts of straps. This is a dog with a deformed, born with a deformed leg and what front leg, his front leg. Yep. But what happened is he ruptured a cruciate in his rear leg. Well, yep. you, know, you, you can do okay with three legs, but it's hard to get around with two legs. So that was a perfect example where an artificial limb was absolutely essential for this pet. Right. So, so it does happen. And so it's, it's good that you're including dogs in our, in your research. Yep. And, and, you know, I think it, we start talking to people and um, the, a big thing people talk about is, you know, cost and practicality. Um, and in some ways, you know, the, one of the things we're looking at on this is actually, I hope, going to um, make this affordable for animals, for, for veterinary medicine, um, not cheap, but affordable. And also may will lower the cost in terms of medical insurance for humans and what it costs for these surgeries is something that's happened while we were doing this research is 3D printing. That's and, what, um, what I wanted to get into. How yeah, do you okay. make these and, things? Yeah, that yeah, was, so, took the words right out of my mouth. Yeah. So it used to be, you would take a piece of titanium, you know, titanium is a very expensive metal and um, a company would take a block of titanium, they would mill it, you know, so you're looking at a machine shop and they would mill this thing into the shape that they needed to. And um, it's a very complicated procedure. Um, it takes a long time. There's a lot of quality control. And, and you know, basically it's, you know, things like knees, there's not a whole lot of choice if 
you know, you're smaller or larger than the average person. You know, there may be a small knee and a large knee. And when they're going to put a knee into you, they go, hmm, which one looks closer? <laughs> you know? um, so with additive manufacturing, there's actually machines that will print in metal. Metals like titanium. And it's really crazy. They actually uh, have titanium powder. <clears throat> and the way I understand it is these really high energy, very narrow lasers will blast a little little area of powder and fuse it. And this might be well under a millimeter that they can turn a powder into a solid piece of metal. And then they, they go around, they make a pattern and they put another layer of powder on and they, then they blast those and they work their way up and they kind of build this thing from the bottom up, like putting layers on a layer cake. Like a Legos. Um, it just, or Legos, you know, they snap together. And so what we basically do is we design these, you know, in the engineering department at university of Maine, um, and we say, here's this, the internal structure. This is what the pore needs to look like. This is um, where, where there's going to be solid, where there's going to be porous elements. If we want to put a hole where we can put a suture through, we say, let's put a suture hole right here. And so we, we make these things in three dimensions on a computer, and then we send it down to a company in Portland. And uh, I'm going to put a shout out to um, Brian, Brian McCulloch at um, Amplify Additive. Brian is um, the president of this company, and I think they're down in Scarborough, and they print medical devices in titanium down there. It's amazing that we have this in the state of Maine. But uh, apparently, his company is one of the leaders in um, in additive manufacturing of, of medical devices in the country, which is really neat. Um, so anyway, um, once we get these things designed, we can print them fairly quickly and test them. Um, another thing that we found with with veterinarians. Um, you know, the cost of these, because once you've got the design down and it, then it's just a matter of time on the printer, we actually think we can lower these, the cost of these over time to where they're competitive with, you know, the old fashioned designs or even cheaper. Um, and once we have these down, we know how to print them. Then we can say, gosh, you know, we've got a 20 pound dog over here. So let's take the computer design and adjust it slightly so it fits a dog of that size versus uh, St. Bernard or Great Dane. So I think what we can find is we can make these um, adjustable to different size and weight animals, you know, depending on what they need. We can engineer the design and very quickly say, all right, you know, we, we've got a dog here that in two weeks needs a surgery. Um, he weighs 20 pounds. Here's a picture of his femur. Maybe we'll get a, um, you know, 3D cat scan or something like that of the thing, send that down and make a custom fit device for that animal and then nice. print it out and it's ready to go. It's gets sent to the veterinarian's office. So kind of Buck Rogers and, you know, very yeah. forward thinking, but you know, I was talking with a fellow today and we we're saying, you know, eventually if this ends up in hospitals with humans, it may be that the hospital has their 3d printer on site and they buy the technology and the programs from the medical implant companies and say, gosh, I got a surgery next week. I need to make a hip for Mr. Smith. And they hit the button and the thing gets printed. It would be really cool. So these refer to a, a TV show. I had that um, Big Bang Theory had yes, yes. a 3D printer. They're printing their own. So it kind of looks like a big microwave. Yeah, this is a, um, these things are like, uh, they're, they're like size of a big dryer, I guess I would say, you know, and they're <laughs> <Okay>. all enclosed. <laughs> Okay. And, um, you know, because they're working with lasers and um, these metal dusts are actually explosive if they mix with oxygen. So, you know, so, oh. so it's a very it's a very involved. I mean, there's there's all kinds. Of, I, I, I know just enough about it to be dangerous. But but anyway, um, it 
it's a very involved process. They're very expensive machines, but um, the, the, the big thing is if we can actually get enough business to these companies, you know, they'll, I think the technology will flourish. Um, there's a company called Strike Orthopedics, which is one of the largest medical implant manufacturers in the world. And, you know, they've invested very highly in, in 3D printing. So they're looking at a lot of different devices that are being put into the human body that are being 3D printed. Some of them are solid. Some of them may have porous surfaces. Some may have roughened surfaces. Um, and, and they've, you know, their, their technology is just amazing. And, and so these smaller companies are coming on board and doing custom work and trying to help companies bring products to market. Basically, here's a comp- a, an idea we have. Let's make one and start testing it. And so that's where the university comes in is we work with these companies on, on commercialization grants and basic research grants. And, you know, I'm, again, we're talking with medical implant manufacturers about, is there some way we can help you with testing in the engineering lab or with animal research or those kind of things? So where do you see this project in the next couple of years? Where's your, what's your next step? So I think we, you know, we're going to continue to do research. Um, the medical doctor, uh, Dr. Dickey, is at the um, the VA out in Colorado right now, and he's working with VA grants and and the VA institution with you know veterans, and uh, he does a lot of surgeries and things, and he's looking at different ways of approaching surgeries and innovative designs, including this, and he's going to keep going on that end certainly, and we we're doing basic research with Ian still, where we get together and we design a research project and we say, okay, let's look at either the engineering side or the animal side of, of this implant and how it performs. Um, but we're also starting to get into how can we start pushing these things to market? And that's where we work with collaborating private companies and start figuring out, you know, how can we get through the government approval, the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration? How do we... Um, find um, a market for this, you know, so a lot of it is talking to hospitals, talking to physicians, talking to veterinarians, um, hospital administrators, um, insurance companies, all these people and and finding out what they think about the current designs and and the limitations of current medical devices and what they would like to see in, in new ones. So it's sort of a discovery procedure and I'm hoping it'll lead to some products. Uh, the university is, is ready to license this technology. And that's what we tend to do when researchers find out, you know, here's a better mousetrap and the university, for example, gets a patent on it. They then look for people who can use that in the real world. And that's what we're trying to do right now is we're at the very beginning steps of, of that process. And who knows where it's going to go? You know, I'm so along for the ride right now. (laughs) Sounds like you're having fun. Uh, So as a researcher, at what point do you let go and you have nothing to do with it because you don't want to get into the business part and all right, that stuff. Right. Right. Yeah. Well, I still have obligations. You know, I, I have classes to teach and I have to do my research projects and I work with, you know, the folks out in the, the field. And I also, you know, have administrative responsibilities. I run the animal science programs, sort of the, when new students come in, I'm the first person they talk to, for example. And I also have my, my work with the Animal Care and Use Committee. So I don't have a whole lot of free time. <laughs> but it may be something where, you know, we are involved also on the commercial side and helping a commercial company to, to adapt this. And I think there's, there's actually government grants. Um, there's it's small business innovation and research grants that help 
they basically help to partner universities with private companies. And in this case, it's through the National Institute of Health. So the, the goal is, is to find a new, better medical device or a, right. a new drug or something like that, or, you know, a, a new diagnostic technique. So we're exploring those right now. And there's some really neat opportunities that I think we're going to take advantage of this year and, and apply to some of these grants with some of our commercial partners. And so that's, again, that's just starting. And um, as I'll be the research side, probably, but I'm going to learn a lot about what's going on on the commercial side, because, again, instead of just saying, here's a research finding, you know, we, we found that this implant was 10% better than the old implant and some something that we measured. I now have to say, what is the market need and how can we get there? And I think I'm, I've always been an applied researcher. I think veterinarians tend to be very applied scientists. We, we do really well with like, okay, I'm doing this research, but it's going to help an animal right. or a person or something down the line. And we have an applied bent to us, I think. And well, so that, that fits in very well with my job. You know, very I can good. be as applied or as basic as I want to be, which is one of the nice things about being a professor at a university. This is WERU in Orland, Maine. Let's Talk Animals from Aardvarks to Zebras. Dr. John Hunt, your host. And I'm talking to Dr. Jim Weber from the University of Maine talking about uh, new innovative uh, research in implants, but that's only one of his jobs, being a research. He also teaches students and also helps the public, but he is very much involved in teaching students, and he, has a, uh, he wants to share with us what he does at the university in education. Uh, he has an applied science program, and I'd like to have Jim spout off and brag about that. <laughs> I, 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 this is my, one of my favorite things to do is to brag about our students. Um, one of the best parts of my job is I, um, I get to deal and, you know, basically mentor and work with students for, you know, four years um, during a really important time in their life, you know, from between high school and the end of college. So these are 18, 19, 20 somethings. Um, there we have older students, certainly. And I, I really, you know, it's, it's, probably the best part of my job in terms of just satisfaction because, you know, these students come in, they're, they're young adults. They really don't know where they're going. They've got an idea. Gosh, I want to be a veterinarian. I want to work with animals. And we help them to basically take that desire and find something that's concrete that they can do with it. Um, and, you know, some of the students come in, they, they want to be veterinarians and we help them do that. And, and they go through school and they start being a vet, wanting to be a veterinarian. They end being, you know, going to vet school. And we're sending a bunch of students off this year to vet schools in the fall. And I'm really proud of them. Congratulations. Yeah. And it's, it's great. You know, we're, we're pretty successful in getting students in. If they do the job and do well in school, we can, we can help them get in. The, there's another group of students that come in and they may not be quite as focused. You know, these students are all different levels of maturity and knowing about the world and the job market. And we help them find out, well, okay, this is what a veterinarian does. And there's these other things you can do. You can be an animal nutritionist. You can work for a drug company. You can, you know, we've had students go into the medical field. We have students that are MDs. Um, I have students going to dental school next, next year, you know. Um, so there's a lot of opportunities and we try to open up their, their eyes basically to these other opportunities. And so we have a program, it's called Animal and Veterinary Sciences. But, you know, if I get a student who's really interested in wildlife, I may call up people in the wildlife program and say, I got a student you need to talk to and advise, and maybe they should be in your program. So the first couple of years, a lot of the classes in the applied sciences are very similar. 
everybody's taking basic chemistry and basic math and basic biology and things. So students really don't lose much if they come in, you know, in animal science one year and they end up in, um, you know, marine science, for example, um, when they're a sophomore. So that's a big part of my job is figuring out just where these students want to be and helping them to get there. How about a student that just, just loves animals and a fair student in terms of uh, classwork and stuff. And, you know, he's, he or she has already been scared off about veterinary medicine. It, it, it is, uh, that happens a lot. You know, you want to be a vet and yeah. you're, you're told, you know, you got to be straight A's and which isn't true, but uh, that's what they're told. And they're even scared of doing chemistry and, and those kind of hard science where, where can the university of Maine, how can the university of Maine help them at a higher sure. education level? Yeah. And I think there's a couple of things with that. And, and one is um, you know, one thing I found is students come in as freshmen with different levels of preparedness in the sciences. And it really, you know, it may not, it might be the smartest student ever, and maybe their school didn't have a program that was college level, or they, something happened, they, they couldn't take the advanced courses, you know, so, you know, as you're going through high school, you know, they, they get to college, and that first year of chemistry, they expect a certain amount of basic knowledge, and sometimes students can't catch up fast enough. And, and one thing the university does is we watch these freshmen very carefully um, we have a lot of different advising. So if they're getting into trouble, we help them with study skills. And, and even things like there's tutor programs where we'll take students who did really well in freshman chemistry and we'll pay them by the hour to work with students. You know, when they're a sophomore, they'll work with the freshmen and they'll actually help them to study for tests and give them hints and study skills and all that stuff and sit down in the library with them. And that's been very successful. So one thing is trying to get everybody up, up to the speed where they can do college level science. Um, if a student is still struggling at that point, um, each student is, is assigned to an academic advisor. And I have a number of students that I follow basically throughout their career and I get to know them. We meet several times a semester, um, even more, you know, some of these students are in my door every, every day almost. <laughs> um, and that's fine. You know, that's, that's my job. I'm here to kind of keep them going and, and advise them and encourage them. But we talk about these things like, okay, you know, if, if you want to go to vet school, here are the averages and the, the minimum grades that you have to get. You have to take these courses. This upcoming course is really difficult, so don't take it with seven other courses. <laughs> you know, those kind of things. So we're always going in and trying to tweak, tweak their program a little bit to make it to make them successful. And if they aren't at the point, you know, sometimes they come in and say, Dr. Weber, I, I don't want to go to vet school anymore. What else is out there? Or, you know, it may be because of classes and maybe they worked in a veterinarian's office and they didn't like it. You know, um, that's happened. Um, or they find out they, they catch fire and they say, gosh, you know, I want to go into diagnostics. I want to be the person who invents the next COVID-19 vaccine. And, you know, we expose them to those kind of things. So basic sciences and more medical fields, things like that. Um, epidemiology, you know, um, I don't know how many guys have wa watched Dr. Shaw over the last year. <laughs> you know? Excellent. Um, you know, he, he's been wonderful. And I, I'm guessing that there's going to be a whole bunch of students who want to go in and become epidemiologists. Because, yeah, yeah. Because, because of all this really cool stuff that's happened. And so, you know, we look at those as, as opportunities, I think. And, you know, frankly, I don't care 
whether a student goes to vet school or medical school or becomes a veterinary technician or becomes a physician's assistant or works in a dairy, manages a dairy. I, you know, those are all, we're looking for a professional career path that hopefully involves animals because that's what these students like. And that's kind of the, the unifying thing, but we want to find something that they're happy with and that, you know, they can sort of exercise their minds and have a fulfilling career. And I've, I've seen a lot of different directions over the last 25 years with my students. So I can kind of say, oh, you know, I saw this happen, you know, where a student went through this path and did really well stuff. So what's the trend you're seeing now? Last five years. Um, We've had a lot of students go to vet school. Um, you know, again, uh, there's there's always, you know, the students who want to go in and, and we've been pretty successful and their success rate's gone up. I think we're seeing students that are going out and we're actually, um, their first job out of school is, uh, you know, for example, working on a dairy and being one of the dairy managers for a large dairy in Maine or New England or even New York State. Um, and that's been kind of neat. We have a faculty member, um, Dave Marcinkowski works in extension and uh, he runs a real hands-on program in our dairy, teaches the students a lot of skills, um, has a bunch of really good classes. And, and he kind of gets them excited about the dairy industry. And, you know, these, if you've got a 1500 cow dairy, you need a full-time person who really knows what they're doing to keep those animals healthy and happy and milking and clean and, you know, all the different things. It's a very challenging job. Um, and it actually takes a number of managers to do it right. So those are things we've had students go into um, what we call the feed industry, where they're um, they work with clients on horse farms or dairy farms or you know anywhere, and they're they're designing rations that those animals can eat. And they're saying, okay, we can you know make you a, ten tons of this particular ration for growing pigs or for milking dairy cows or something like that. So students have gotten into nutrition. Um, I've got students who work. Um, in reproduction, so artificial insemination, embryo transfer, things like that. We've got veterinarians and, and non-veterinarians who are working in sort of the animal reproduction field. That's know, a blended field, that. isn't it? You, you yeah. can be a AI, artificial insemination, and not be a veterinarian. Yeah, and, right? and you know, the veterinarian comes on a farm, and he may be doing embryo transfer. He needs someone to manage those animals and make sure that, for example, all there's a number of hormone shots that have to be given to the animals to get them ready, just like they would have for women with in vitro fertilization. And, um, you know, nutrition is really important for reproduction. And once the animals are pregnant, you know, hopefully you've done, the veterinarian has done his job and, and transferred an embryo or, or something or done a surgical procedure. And, and then we have to keep that animal healthy and birth out the baby, you know, and there, there's right. genetics, there's, there's all kinds of, you know, another area that we're looking at with students is genetics, because there's all this DNA work where we can tell all kinds of things about an animal and, and its performance and it's what it's what we can predict about its health. And this is whether it's a human or a cow or a dog or a cat, you know, this, this field is just, you know, growing by leaps and bounds every year. And some of our students really get into what we call genomics, which is using the DNA and finding out what it's telling us to predict things like health and longevity and, and production how much milk a cow is going to make, how fast a horse is going to run, you know, things like that. Um, and there's, there's hundreds of different traits that we can measure now genetically. So are there, are there jobs in the private industry that would need someone like that? Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, again, uh, for example, one of the things we've been doing for a number of years up at our dairy is we, we try to improve the genetics, the, the production of these animals. So these are, you can think of a, a cow as, as a car. Um, a beef cow would be a Ford 
a dairy cow would be a Ferrari. Okay. And when you really think about it, it's, it's an animal that a lot of energy has to go into, and it's producing a whole bunch of products, producing milk. And everything's got to be just right on that Ferrari. It's got to be tuned just right. And the genetics help the animal to basically be more efficient and produce more and stay healthy, you know, during, during the milking. So genetics plays a big part of that. And, and every cow at our university, we send their DNA to a lab and the lab comes back and says, here are all the traits for this particular animal, this particular dairy cow. And, uh, you know, we, we see that this cow has really good milk production, but maybe she's not putting enough protein into her milk. So that needs to be improved. Maybe she's got crooked legs that needs to be improved. And what they do, it's like a dating service. They actually will recommend a bull that has traits that that cow is missing that would improve that cow's baby's production. So every year, you know, when that cow is being bred, we go through and we look through the records. I get on the computer and say, this is the bull for this cow. And we buy a straw of frozen semen from that bull. And, you know, for, and then we, we breed that cow and she ends up having a better baby. And, And the genetic improvement in our dairy cows has been incredible. We've got one of the highest producing dairy dairies in, in New England. You know, we, every year we have all kinds of, we were winning awards in terms of dairy, you know, production and health and quality of milk, things like that. That's a great combination. A geek that loves animals can make a yeah. living. That's pretty good. Yeah. You, can, you can sit there and work on the computer all day, but then at some point you got to go out and see Bessie in the barn and, and you know, <laughs> yeah, see what's going go on. And you have to understand, you have to look at her and say, okay, you know, what's, what's good about this animal's anatomy and conformation and udder and things like that. And that's the kind of thing we teach the students. You know, they, um, one of the things I can say about the animal science program is we have a working dairy and we have a working horse farm and it's very different types of animal management and the students over the years that they're here get to spend a lot of time in both and they learn from what they see happening day to day in the barn and that you know the genetics the genomics is one part of it where the students they see a cow and maybe the next year they see the calf we do the test on the calf and you go wow you know that we really change the genetics um or you get mastitis in an animal and the student's helping to treat it with antibiotics or um, there's a difficult birth and there's a calf that needs help and they work on it. You know, there's a lot of stuff on the equine side in terms of, you know, animal management and um, lameness and, you know, th- there's some riding involved. There's, there's all kinds of things. And it's, it's just a fun experience. And the, uh, the role of the farmer and uh, what they do has, uh, expanded into more veterinary husbandry kind of things, not veterinary medicine, but veterinary husbandry. 50 years yeah. ago, the veterinarians said that they pulled all the calves and did that. But now they farmers need to save money and there aren't yeah. very many veterinarians around to do it. So they got to do it themselves. So they're doing veterinary husbandry related things, even though they're not in yeah. school. Exactly. You know, a lot of stuff, you know, you watch the old James Harriet thing, yeah. and, you know, he's doing it. Well, now what, what happens with a big dairy um, you know, again, it's costs part partially, but again, it's the veterinarian. There's not enough of them around. Um, the veterinarian works with the managers and they produce what we call standard operating procedures that the veterinarian approves. And then he says, okay, I have trained you. You now can go out and pull a calf or you can give a antibiotic injection or, 
Um, you know, those types of things that used to be the veterinarian came in. Now, the veterinarians still do the surgical procedures. Right. If we have to deliver a calf by cesarean, the diagnostics, um, yeah. they'll do the uh, the pregnancy checks and things. But, um, you know, the, the person who's giving most of the injections is probably the manager at this point. And it's a it's a nice interaction between the veterinarian and the um, the producer, certainly, you know, the, the dairy manager. And I think that's, you know, it's it's very efficient. Um, as long as the veterinarian is involved. And that's what I teach the students is, you know, you, you basically have a certain amount of knowledge, but you always want to know when you need to call on somebody who has more knowledge or more experience. That's why having a veterinarian on staff or, you know, on contract for your, for your farm is really, really important. And that's, that's one of the big things we teach producers is, you know, don't try to do it yourself. Um, all you have to do is get a veterinarian on your farm, you know, doing some, routine things. And then that veterinarian, you know, if you do it so many times a year and you talk to the veterinarian about what the minimum is, you end up producing what's called a veterinary client relationship. Right. And then they can talk to you on the phone about things. They can come in on emergencies, all those things, whether herd it's small animals, kind of thing. yeah, herd management, and even with dogs and cats, you know, if you have a local veterinarian at your small right. animal clinic, if they know you, they've seen your dogs, they've given vaccines, all of a sudden your dog starts vomiting one night, and you call up the veterinarian, they'll, they'll know enough about your animal. They feel comfortable that they can give you advice or say, come on in at you know 11 o'clock at night and we'll, we'll take a look. So I think having a veterinarian, that's, that's kind of where that animal, animal manager, and, and whether it's a, a pet owner or a dairy manager and a veterinarian is really important. And that's why I loved uh, practicing in Bucksport. It was a small town. I knew everybody. And if they called me up or whatever, I knew who they were. I knew the pet. And yep. I, I could do a lot more advice give them a lot more advice on the phone because I knew them. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and it makes for happier owners and healthier pets. Yeah. Certainly when you can have that together. And um, I would argue that, you know, it's, it's a very good investment, whether you're a pet owner or, you know, if you've got a thousand cow dairy is to basically get to know your local veterinarian who's interested in your type of animal. And uh, you know, plus they're a lot, they're really fun people. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, Two more questions. We have about three minutes yeah. to go. Two okay. questions uh, I'd like to ask you. One is what new programs are you trying to instill at University of Maine uh, in the applied science in the next couple of years? And the second one sure. is how are you managing with the pandemic for this coming September? Those are two final questions. Oh, goodness. Well, first off, um, you know, we're continuing on with our animal science program. Um, we started an equine concentration, I think it was last year. So students who really want to concentrate on horses now can actually come in and, and spend a lot of their time taking classes and doing hands-on stuff with horses. So we have a pre-veterinary concentration and equine concentration and animal science um, emphasis. So that's one. Um, we've got more and more students going to Europe to vet school, which is really interesting. Mm -hmm. We've got a contract that we started a few years ago with the University of Glasgow beautiful college out there and at the UK um, that students are going to. And so that it's, it's interesting. There's more opportunities for the veterinarians. As far as COVID, you know, we've had a, a rough patch this last year. The, the, the poor students, um, you know, they've had a lot of distance education. We've managed to keep our dairy open and our equine barn open. So the students, at least on campus, have been able to go out and wear masks and work with the horses and the cows and social distance. So that we've been successful in that way. It looks like in the fall, we're, we're going to try to go back to normal, 
with no masks, hopefully um, in class, you know, people are going to meet in a lecture hall together. Um, we're going to just start, you know, student clubs stopped last year. We're going to start those up again. I'm hoping that, you know, fall of 21 is going to be back to normal. I'm really, really hoping. <laughs> but the, the assumption that uh, vaccinations are going to be the main um, right. force that will allow, allow you to do that. Yeah, it's been wonderful. I mean, uh, you know, as a disease person, I, I just can't believe what's happened in this last year. We, we're looking at a moment in history. Yes. You know, we've never seen a disease risk like that that's been taken care of. I call it mitigated by what we've done in such a short period of time. It's, it's really amazing. People are going to talk about this for, for years. Yeah, we've we've gone through a very a very difficult but very unique time in in human history. It's exciting. It's exciting. Yeah, it's exciting. It, it kind of stunk, but you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But but you know, yeah. And again, we're hopefully looking at it in the the rearview mirror. But I think you know, if you really appreciate this for uh, what what's happened in terms of human medicine in the last year, it's 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 mind boggling. Well, our time is almost up, and once again, a, another great. Uh, visit with you. It's always yep. fun talking with you, and I appreciate your time. I know you're you're really busy, <laughs> even yeah. in, even in the summer. Yeah. And maybe yeah. uh, we'll make a trifecta, and you can come back a third time. We can talk about anything you want. Yeah, yeah. Well, we can. You know, I'd love to have a, a back and forth with the people once we get back to where the phone lines are open again. Give yes. me a call. I'd love it. That'd it's be always fun. good to see you, John. Thanks. Yes, it's always great. My best to your family, of course. Sure thing. Dr. Jim Weber from the University of Maine, a veterinarian, staff veterinarian, uh, has uh, taken a little time out to help share his new research and his education uh, programs at University of Maine. Thank you very much, Jim. You're welcome. So this is for this is Dr. John Hunt for Let's Talk Animals. And remember, enjoy your pet and don't forget to give them a hug. <laughs>